0: Hey everybody, welcome to West Seattle Christian Online. If you're new, welcome. If not, welcome back. Today we're starting a new series on the book of Revelation. And it's really just a start because there's a lot to learn from this book. Uh, I think it would take several series. So I know some of you are thinking, yes, this is exciting. Revelation and others of you are like, I don't know about this because yeah, it's definitely a different kind of book in the Bible. So right at the start i want to let you know that we're not going to cover every little nitty-gritty detail and for those of you online we're going to be doing things a little bit differently and by that i mean we're going to have a new teaching in this series every other week so you're going to have a week off in between in those off weeks our Kimfolk groups are going to be meeting and talking more about this and having some great times of fellowship so if you're in the west seattle area and and you don't have a church yet we encourage you to join up with us what we're going to do in this series is concentrate on the first three chapters of Revelation is kind of like the base layer of knowledge you need to have to understand Revelation properly. So there are two takeaways I want you to leave uh, with that I want you to have when we're done with this series by late September. And the first is that you know how to read the rest of Revelation uh, after what we've covered in after what we cover in the next several weeks. And the second is that our church, West Seattle Christian Church, would become increasingly competent and more uh, uh, the church Jesus wants us to be in the world. So let's begin. The layout of the first three chapters of Revelation is really simple. The first chapter is an introduction. Chapter 2 and 3 contain seven uh, short letters from Jesus to seven different churches in Asia Minor. And I want that to sink in for a minute. Maybe you thought that Jesus never wrote a letter in the Bible, um, that it's just stories about Jesus. But what we have here in Revelation are seven short letters from Jesus himself in these chapters two and three that are each unique and specifically addressed to seven different first-century churches. And Jesus does two basic things in each of these short letters. He encourages and he corrects. So he encourages these churches by making it really clear What are the things that you need to keep doing that you've already been doing? And then he corrects these churches by making it really clear the things that they need to stop doing. So as a church today, we recognize that we want to be what Jesus wants us to be in this world. So maybe it's a good idea to take a look at these letters to see what kinds of encouragement and correcting Jesus himself was giving some of the first churches that ever existed. So because we're not so different from them, After all, uh, it would be pretty easy to look around at the world out there and not have a lot of hope. But as we try to follow Jesus here, we understand there's a lot of pressures that are squeezing us from the outside to compromise with the ways of the world. Uh, But as you read Revelation, what you begin to see is that Jesus wants his church to have hope and to live with character and holiness in the midst of those pressures, in the midst of those hardships. So Revelation was and is actually meant to be an encouraging book. It's actually kind of the height of irony that today a lot of Christians are kind of scared of taking a look at Revelation. uh, Because this letter is actually about the amazing hope that we have in Jesus. And it's about having the character of Jesus or holiness. It's about living lives of character, uh, of righteousness in a world that's constantly trying to get us to change and get off the path, change our tune and follow its story. But these letters from Jesus take us deeper than just telling us to be righteous and holy. They ask a deeper question and that question is what's the motivation for your holiness? Why does Jesus want you to be righteous and holy? Why should you want to be holy? So let's jump into the text and see what we find and we're going to just going to start in the first couple of verses and go from there. First two verses say the revelation from Jesus Christ which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John Uh, who testifies to everything he saw, that is, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. So right out of the gate, what we see here is that this is called the book of Revelation. It is not uh, Revelations. It is one revelation. Uh, We also find a person named John. But the most important observation here is that this letter is all about Jesus. And that's uh, integral to the letter. It's important because as you read and study the book of Revelation, We need to remember that it's all about Jesus. Well, verse 3 says, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. So there's this detail about Revelation being read out loud and people being blessed by hearing it. Verse 1, if you go back to that, told us that this letter is written to the servants of Jesus. In other words, those who believe in him. So what I want you to notice here is that Revelation is meant to be a blessing to believers. And we also see that Revelation is prophecy, which simply put means that these are the words of God. That's the basic understanding of prophecy. In verses 4 and 5, John it says this, John to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. And it's at this point we figure out Revelation is a letter. It's written by a guy named John uh, to a group of churches in Asia Minor, which is where you can find modern day Turkey. And John is most likely one of the 12 apostles, one of the original disciples of Jesus. It's the same John who wrote the Gospel of John and the other three letters of John later in the New Testament. 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And we see that he is writing to this group of Christians, to these churches in Asia Minor. John says he receives this revelation from Jesus himself, and then he writes it down for these churches. And this letter is meant to be an encouragement to them. And so what this means is that Revelation can't be a book only about future events, like so many people today want to make it about. Uh, because John sent this letter to these Christians 2,000 years ago in Asia Minor, and it was read directly to them, and it made sense to them. And it wouldn't have made sense to them if it were only about things that you and I are dealing with today in the 21st century. And this is why we often talk about how context matters here when when we as a church study the scriptures. We say context matters. Like all the letters in the New Testament, Revelation was not... It wasn't written directly to you, but it's written for you. What I mean by that is that we're kind of reading someone else's mail here. It had meaning for them, and they've passed it on to us, and it still has meaning for us as well. So the book of Revelation is still a book of encouragement for all believers throughout all time because it's kind of a timeless message. Another thing to notice here in verses 4 or 5 are all these important titles given to Jesus, which we should pay close attention to because titles were a big deal back then. Uh, in the Roman Empire and in other empires. The emperor and all the heads of state and government and military officials in the Roman Empire had special titles which were meant to convey power and privilege and prestige. And Jesus is given these three titles here the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Jesus has given even more than that over three dozen titles in Revelation, and most of them are given to him right here in the first three chapters. So these titles convey the power and the ability he has and the majesty of jesus so if you hear this letter and you believe that jesus is what these titles say he is what they attribute to him then that's where a lot of the hope in this letter comes from i.e the firstborn from the dead he's the firstborn there's more to come and so what we read next are even more titles In the next couple of verses, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Look, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him and even those who pierced him and all peoples on earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who was and who is and who is to come, the Almighty. You see, this letter is all about Jesus. It's meant to be an encouragement from him, and it's prophetic. It's predicting that Jesus is coming. These verses also contain references to the Old Testament scriptures too, in fact. So, Revelation is filled to the brim with Old Testament references. It's chock full, which means this. The more you read and understand the Old Testament, the more revelation is going to make sense to you. We also see right here that Revelation is loaded with symbols. And what you need to know is that when you're reading Revelation and things start to get a little bit weird, and you're like, what does all this mean? Usually what's happening is symbols are getting stacked and stacked and stacked upon more symbols and more symbols. Well, then we come to verse 9 through 11. It says this, I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day, I was in the spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. So John, he's on this island of Patmos in the Mediterranean Sea off the coast of Asia Minor, and he's been placed under house arrest. That's why he's there for preaching about Jesus. He's been exiled because at this time, Christianity is illegal and Christians are being persecuted and even killed. And while he's there, John has this vision and he's told to write everything down to send it to these churches. And the question you should be asking is why these seven churches? Well, first, it's probably because uh, John was the pastor of these seven churches, probably. There's a lot of work on this, but I happen to think that it's likely that he spent a lot of time with these churches. He knew them. He was connected to them in some way. but. These churches are also on a major, major trade route in the Roman Empire. In fact, the order that these churches are listed here in Revelation is the same order that they appear on trade route maps. So even though it's written to these specific churches, the idea here is that this letter of Revelation will also be read to churches everywhere, including our church. So John hears this voice and he's about to turn around and he's going, he wants to see who's talking to him. And here's what he sees. So hold, hold on to your seat. Here's what it says. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace and his Voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. His face was shining, was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I'm the first and the last. I'm the living one. I was dead, and now look, I'm alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, what you've seen, what is now and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So what we see here in summary is John turns around. To see Jesus in all His glory, and Jesus' eyes are fire, and He has metal feet, and stars in His hands, and a sword coming out of His mouth. This is just crazy intense. It's like beyond Lord of the Rings, fa- Rings fantastical. Here, uh, there are a lot of symbols here that mean something. Many of which the original hearers would, they would have heard this and would have understood it. But sometimes the symbols would have been hard for even them to understand. And so, in those cases, uh, we are told what the symbols mean, like with the seven stars, the stars and the lampstands. We're told what those mean. Jesus tells John, write down what you've seen, things that are happening now and things that are gonna happen. Jesus is telling John that some of the things we see here are going to happen in the future, but a lot of what Jesus shows John is telling him about things that are happening right then in John's present life, when John was alive. Now, this is a good time to say that we focus today almost exclusively on the physical stuff around us, the physical world. But there's also the spiritual reality that's just as real as everything around us that we tend to forget about. And Jesus reveals that spiritual reality to us through the book of Revelation. He kind of pulls back the curtain and says, hey, this is what's really going on. So Jesus explains to John that the lamp stands and are the seven churches of Asia Minor. And the stars are the symbols of the angels of the seven churches. In short, there's this vastly deeper spiritual reality than the physical reality that we can see. These churches are lampstands, which means they're meant to be a light in a dark world. The text says Jesus stands in among the lampstands, which means he's in close proximity to them. He lives with them. He makes his dwelling with them. And then there's these stars that represent the angels of the churches. What's up with that? Are these actual spiritual beings? Does every church have its own angel? Well, what's going on here is this. Sometimes a Bible translation might have the word messenger here instead of angel in Greek, the word angel and messenger, are exactly the same word, which makes perfect sense because anytime an angel shows up in the Bible, uh, you know, they're bringing a message. In this case though, the messengers of the churches are not spiritual beings like angels the word angel here actually refers to the human leaders of these churches who are represented by stars because stars give off lights just like lampstands and also because in those days stars were used for navigation they still are today these angels these messengers these church leaders of these seven churches are called to be a light just like the rest of the believers in those churches but they're also given the responsibility to guide and navigate for those churches that's what we see here another thing last thing for this section i want to point out is the number seven in that culture number numbers had significance and the number seven is considered a holy number so there's seven churches seven lampstands seven stars back in verse four there was this sevenfold spirit before the throne of god which is just a way of saying the Holy Spirit because the number seven is the holy number. So the Holy Spirit is present and at work in all of this. And all of that brings us to chapter two of Revelation and the first of the seven letters of Jesus to one of these churches. Let's start there. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. So remember, when it says the angel, it's referring to the leader of the church in Ephesus. The leader could have been one person or it could be several people. And then it says Jesus refers to himself with the title, the one who holds the seven stars and walks among the seven lampstands. Jesus, uh, the image here is that Jesus is holding this church in his hands. Jesus holds all these churches. He is empowering their mission. He is among the lampstands. He's caring for these people. He loves them very much. He wants them to be filled with hope and holiness. And he holds us too, and he wants the same for us. And so he has some encouraging words for them and for us, starting in verse two and three. He says, I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you can't tolerate wicked people, that you've tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. This is a massive compliment from Jesus. He says, You work hard, you've persevered, you're seeking holiness, you're not led astray by false teaching, you've stood up to persecution. Not bad. So, this church, this church in Ephesus was started by Paul, which you can read about in Acts 9. And this city, Ephesus, is second only to Rome in terms of its size and influence. It was Roman to the core. So you're talking about all kinds of pagan influence, spiritual warfare going on. Read Acts 19 when you have a chance. Paul chose this city to be kind of of like a base of operations for the early Christians to get the news of Jesus out to the world. But because of all the other influences of the world in this city, if you were a Christian there, it was really hard not to give in to the pressure that, that was there to sell out. You could be sold into slavery or put into prison or beaten in your house, your business. Everything could be taken away from you in a flash just for proclaiming Christ. So the takeaway here is that Christians here had to work really hard to maintain this distinct identity that was modeled on the person of Jesus and following his way. And Jesus writes this letter and he says, he's like, look, I see you. I see all the good things about you. I know how it's hard to stay holy and hopeful in the midst of everything going on that you live in but I see you succeeding in these things. So good job. But then in verses four or five, it says this, yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you've fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I'll come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Essentially, Jesus says you've done all the right things, but you've forgotten your first love. In other words, Their motivation is misplaced. Uh, What compels them is wrong. In other words, doing the right things for their own sake doesn't cut the mustard with Jesus. And this is a trap and a temptation for us as well. When the culture around us is pressuring us to go along, we're good at holding the line. We can hold the line, though, with completely the wrong motivation. You can hold the line with judgment and hate and show no love. And Jesus says, there are no gold stars for effort if you do it that way, because motivation is everything. Your heart should match my heart, he says. So for Christians, motivation is everything. If we aren't motivated by our love for Christ, it does not matter what we do. Jesus says to this church in Ephesus and to Christian churches everywhere, to our church, if you don't repent of doing these right things with the wrong motivation, I'm going to come and I'm going to take your lampstand away. And the lampstand symbolizes, uh, you know, how we how we shine light in the community. It's our it's our influence in the community, in our city, we're to be a light shining in the darkness and drawing people to God and his love. What Jesus is saying here is if you aren't motivated by love for me, then I'm going to take away your influence in the community. This is a really tough message for us today as well, and Jesus doesn't mince words. If you aren't motivated by love for Jesus, he doesn't want you representing him in the world. If you claim to be a follower of Jesus, then every time you interact with others in any way, in person or online or wherever, you need to ask yourself, am I motivated by love for Jesus? Because right now in our culture, and frankly in the cultural moment of the last several decades, We are more known for what we're against than by what we're for. Is that because of the hostility of the culture, like the culture is to blame? In other words, did the early Christians blame culture when they're being persecuted and killed for their faith? No. So maybe it's Christians today who have forgotten that when they speak and act, they are to be motivated by a love for Jesus. Jesus might say this to us. You're really good at knowing where the line should fall but you've forgotten your first love. He says, if you aren't motivated by love for me, then I don't want you representing me out there in the world. Well, then in verse six and seven, he says this, but you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. The Nicolaitans were these group of Christians who said it was okay to live exactly how the non-Christians around you are living because they thought that God didn't really have a moral standard. And I have found that this has crept back into the church today and the lives of Christians today as well. God certainly does have a moral standard. uh, But the more important matter here that we see John writing through the words in the heart of Jesus is the matter of our own heart. Are we motivated by deep, true, untamed love for Jesus? And if we're not, then we have some repenting to do. Finally, verse 7 has this promise for us as Christians, and we'll wrap it up here. Jesus says, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Those who are victorious, who live holy and hopeful lives in the midst of hardship and the pressure to compromise, those who have the proper motivation for a heart heart after Jesus will be rewarded. In fact, each one of these seven letters ends with a promise. This promise looks forward to the day when those who love Jesus will get to dwell with him forever. And I think maybe this is the most important reason for everything we do, and that is our love for Jesus. It's all about Jesus, which means if you're if you're a believer, your past is Jesus. Your present is Jesus. Your future is Jesus. That's just such a reassuring thought that as, as we go about our life this week, God's calling us to live with this promised hope, God's calling us to live with his holiness, his righteousness in a world that is pressuring us to compromise. Jesus is asking us to be filled with hope, to be filled with righteousness and holiness, but also to check our hearts. Jesus asks us in the end, are we motivated by our love for him? I'm Worth Wheeler for West Seattle Christian Church. Stay rooted and deep in Jesus and produce good fruit, my friends.